Welcome to St. George Orthodox Church Homilies and Reflections. Today's talk is from a series of talks on the book The Ethics of Beauty by Dr. Timothy Petitsis. Today we discuss a section dealing with the trauma of war and consider it in relation to the trauma of the culture wars. Kind of continue our discussion of the of the ethics of beauty. The first chapter that deals with war trauma. And as I was reading it, what I'm going to try to do with these talks, as much as I can, is relate to you a little bit about about what. Dr. Petitis is saying, and then also what he inspired me to think about as I was reading his work. And so today when I was reading the first chapter of when I've been reading it and making notes, it was also a while ago and then last week, and you know, it wasn't just today, but as I've been reading it, um, I started to think because he talks about trauma of war and the, what people experience. And I started to think about the notion, which you've probably heard the term before, the culture wars. And what sort of trauma does that produce in people over time? What sort of like PTSD do they have from engaging in those conflicts over and over again? And um, And I think what Dr. Tim has to say about war, about actual war, um, is actually very applicable to those culture wars that people engage in. The same type of damage occurs, although at a, to a lesser degree, because it's not total chaos, you know, it's not like war itself, which some, which many people write, describe as just being hell itself. But so it's not that bad, um, but there's a mild kind of trauma that occurs. And I think it's, if it's sustained over a long period of time, it actually starts to really, um, it can have a tendency to eat away at people. But so thinking about war, Dr. Tim, he opens the chapter and he talks about how he was troubled by reports that he had heard from many places that our conventional approaches, this is a quote from him, he was troubled by reports that our conventional approaches to the healing of the souls of combat veterans were failing. And so he began to offer educated guesses as to why this might be so and suggested an alternative path towards spiritual wholeness. One of the ways that he began to do this was by looking at the history of the way that war was waged and the way it was understood or considered to be understandable in a way because it goes completely outside of the bounds of rationality. And when he looked at the East and the West, so sort of orthodox approaches compared to Roman Catholic approaches, he noticed that there was a real difference. 
And it's a difference that certainly um, has a lot to do even with the way that we approach spiritual life, all of these other different things. But about the Byzantine approach, the Eastern approach, the approach of the emperors even in Byzantium, one of the things that he first noticed was the great lengths that they went to in order to avoid actual combat engagement with their enemies. They did everything that they possibly could not to allow a fight. And he said, this is because they understood that even if you are really powerful, in battle, things can go terribly wrong very quickly. Things can get completely out of hand. They also understood that there was no way to participate in war without incurring a sort of penalty. So they had no notion of, of being able to understand a war as holy, or something like that. In the West, by the time of the Crusades, the understanding could be that a war might not be morally ambiguous at all. You might actually be justified because in, there's a certain list of criteria that has to be met. It has to be in self-defense. It has to be, you know, for all these different reasons. And if you meet that list of criteria, which again, is, is it a rationalization? You know, it's an intellectual way of looking at the situation on the ground and rationalizing it. If we meet these criteria, then it's okay. And even further, if you participated in the war and the war was for a blessed cause, for the understanding of the Crusades, you might even find your salvation in killing. And so it's a very different understanding that developed in the West by the time of the Crusades. The East never shared in this understanding. He says the participation in a holy war of the Crusades for the West, it might even absolve you of sin rather than being something that's just inherently sinful. But in the East, the understanding continued, which is certainly present, and, and this is something, there's a little footnote in the text where he talks about a conversation that he had with um, a woman who studies the book of Genesis pretty extensively, and she talks about how there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence in Genesis. And she talks about how the, the reality is, is that the understanding there is that in shedding blood, there's, you incur the sense of blood guilt, you know, that needs to be dealt with. And you can't just assume that it's going to go away. And so he says the Byzantine approach is actually the older understanding, even the ancient Greeks, had this understanding that warfare is damage to everyone participating, no matter how noble their cause is. Another way of describing that sense of blood guilt, you could describe it as moral injury that the soldier suffers in the war. And he notes that this is part of the reason why um, 
it kind of dawned on him, well, why does the Orthodox Church take this position that war is, and, and that the actions, so that participating in war is already really morally ambiguous, and then killing in war is understood as a sin. And he says, but then we bless the troops before they go to battle, so what are we doing? <laughs> why are we doing this? And he says, it's because we understand that war is something that is going to damage these poor guys that are participating in it. And so we want to give them every blessing, every benefit, so that they would come back to us somewhat whole and not completely shattered. And so he said it's like an inoculation that we're trying to give them by blessing them before they go to war. And he said, and we do pray for victory, but he said one of the reasons we pray for victory is because this is the quickest road to peace the fastest way for there to be peace is for there to be a quick victory and so that the fighting can stop. So this does not by any means make war holy but it signifies that its destructiveness would pull everyone away in its wake unless they are bound tightly to what is truly holy. And of course, for the Byzantines, this means being bound to the cross of Christ and bound to the church. And that's why as well, when soldiers come back from war, even though there's a time of penance, it's a time in order for there to be healing as quickly as possible for them to be brought back into communion with the life of the church and not left hanging outside. Now he, he notices an interesting thing that even though, so for instance as, America, as, we, as Americans we may not think about war in these, these type of Byzantine terms, we think about it in a very different way. We tend to, I, I think in large part we've, we've adopted kind of a just war mentality that like as long as the objective is just, and especially if it's in self-defense, and you know, we kind of have the list of criteria, and as long as we meet the list of intellectual, rational criteria for entering into combat, then we can walk away from it and not have any guilt, not have any problems. And if anybody does, like it's, it's kind of, it ends up being sort of a mystery, like, well, why are you upset? You, you did what you had to do, you did your job. And that was one of the things that he talked about, is that that sense of doing one's job and getting the work done, you know, completing the mission and all this other stuff. He says, think about American culture. We're, we're essentially, in many ways, a Calvinist culture that's, that has very much ingrained in it the, the uh, Protestant work ethic. And so he says, so when they say all of these things about, I got a job to do, and stuff like that, he's like, well, it's because we value work. It's like the supreme value. So of course, we tie that to what we're doing when we're engaged in battle, we don't say we're going over there to kill people. We go over there and we say we're going there because we got a job to do. We need to, we need to complete the mission. We have work that needs to be done. And, uh, and he said it, at a certain point, I think it was during the Gulf War, there was a cartoonist that actually quipped, you know, made a joke that really CNN, like their theme for the war Instead of saying, you know, America at war, their theme should be America at work. 
you know, <laughs> doing like what we're doing because it's, you know, we're trying to accomplish something here. And that's the way that we understand it. And he says, you can see that sense, even within our own culture, that we bind ourselves to our values because we know that we're entering into a territory that's really risky and that can create a lot of problems. If, however, we kind of continue on this path of trying to rationalize war and rationalize conflict and make it all okay, we start to ignore the tragedy, the tragic dimension that's really inherent in our existence as human beings. And this is something that he begins to develop later on in the chapter of talking about, well, this is a sign or a symptom, this rationalization, even of something like war, of sort of a divorce of the intellect and of the mind from the heart. So that the tragic element that's inherent in our existence is ignored and we can't accept it. And so it puts us in a position of denial about the reality that we're actually experiencing. And so this is a long quote from The Ethics of Beauty from Dr. Tim. He says, there is a tragic dimension inherent in our existence, such that we are often forced to do wrong things in order to survive or to protect our children. Rationalism, so keeping everything up in our head and having our checklist of things that make something okay, Rationalism, however, lacks this appreciation for tragedy, tries to talk itself out of what poetry, religion, and music know so well, that the world is not what it should be, and life is not reducible to linear syllogisms. Ethicists have a concept, and this is a concept that's developed probably in the past I'm not sure, maybe the past 30 years. Ethicists have a concept known as moral luck, which means that sometimes we are held blamable for our action or character, even though we were powerless to act or be otherwise due to bad circumstances. Rationalism hates luck. And ethical rationalism hates moral luck. Luck, if it exists, would frustrate logical reflection. It puts you in a situation where you acknowledge the tragedy of what's happening and you can't explain it away. You can't make it okay. You're just, you're in it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And like he said, most ethicists are starting to acknowledge that like this this happens. People find themselves in these types of situations. Um, hopefully not all the time, but they do. 
Now I want to think about, tell you a little bit about what this reading from Dr. Tim kind of inspired me to think about with regard to polemics. And do they have a similar effect on the soul? And do we try some of the same strategies that we think I can be argumentative, I can be at war with my words constantly, trying to destroy my enemy and kill him. And then I can do that and somehow walk away from it unscathed, provided that I have met the checklist of my criteria that allows me to behave in such a way. You see what I'm saying? So if I have my checklist that, well, and I'll just say that because, because we're, we're, we're all Christians, <laughs> you know, I'll use it from, from like our kind of perspective. That like, well, these progressivists and these people that are trying to destroy our country and bring this madness upon us and change everything about morality and all this other stuff, because they're doing these things, and myself and my family feel threatened by these things, that justifies me going to war. And I can go to that war and engage in that combat of controversy and language and attacks and seek to silence someone and bury them with my words, with polemics. And because I'm justified in doing so, I can walk away from that situation and not be harmed myself. And so you could obviously imagine really easily the other side <laughs> you know, for people that aren't Christians and that they would do the same thing and find some sort of rationalization for why it's okay to attack others, to demonize others, to blame them for every problem that we have in the world and all this other stuff, and then we can walk away from that and be okay. Because it's justified. It met my checklist of reasons why. I think within the Orthodox Church throughout history, what we find is that just like the Byzantines did everything possible to avoid a war, that in general, Orthodoxy throughout history has done everything possible not to be engaged in controversial, raging, heated arguments with others. Sometimes it's absolutely unavoidable and we're kind of trapped. And I think you could look at the situations that gave rise to the ecumenical councils, that we had no choice. And even we sing about it in the hymnody, where we talk about how like they, you know, the, the Arius, the arch heretic was slain by the sword of the spirit and they slew him you know, with a sling of the, of the scriptures or something like that so that he was brought down it was sort of it's like this image of like David taking Goliath down and then he was finally brought down and peace was restored to the church you know and so there's this sense that sometimes it's unavoidable that we participate in these things but the thing is is when we do there's damage and this is something I was listening to a talk with Metropolitan Anthony 
Metropolitan Anthony Bloom the other day of blessed memory. And he was talking about the councils, and he said, of course, like the councils spoke the truth that was inspired by God. But he said, but were they able to bring healing to what gave rise to those divisions and all this other stuff? And he's like, no. Some of those divisions remain to this day. And so he said, even though they were able to speak the truth, and you see how there, there's a cost to engaging in these type of polemical um, scenarios or situations, which is one of the reasons that the church is really reticent about it. And I'll give you an example, too. This comes from Metropolitan Anthony as well. He was... <laughs> he heard... A story once, um, there was a priest who had been ministering in China for quite a while, and he had been conducting missionary activities. He had been trying to get, you know, the Chinese to become Christians, <laughs> and they had, uh, they had kind of, they weren't, they weren't having it. But, but so Silouan, and, and he came to Silouan, and he said, they'll never be Christians. It'll never work, you know. And Silouan said, well, tell me. How were you sharing the faith with them? And he said, well, I would go into their temples and I would shout at them. <laughs> and I said, stop what you're doing. Don't you know that all of these idols are just, you know, wood and stone? And they're not listening to you. They can't hear you. Come and worship the living God. Follow after Christ. And he said, I would shout at them and yell at them when I was in the temple. And none of them ever wanted to talk to me. And Silouan said, well... I can understand why. Like, what were you thinking? You know, the, what, were you, what were you hoping to accomplish by doing this? And so he said, I'll tell you. Next time, when you go there, he said, go into that temple and watch and listen and strive to understand everything that they're doing and why they're doing it. Listen to them. And then he said, after you've been there for a while and you understand, ask one of the monks there or something if you could talk with him and ask him to tell you about what he believes. And just listen. Don't say anything. And he said, and after you've listened to him and you have a relationship and you understand, then when you have a conversation Encourage and bless everything that he's saying that is good and that is beautiful and that is true. And then add to it a little. Ask him, after you tell him, when he shares something with you about what they believe and you say, that's beautiful and that's good, have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought of... of have you ever heard this word of Christ before? You know, he's like, share with him something from the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. Have you ever heard that, it's been, that it was said by Jesus to love your enemies and bless those who curse you? Have you ever heard that? And then have a conversation. And so you see that this is normally the way of Orthodox life. 
the polemics are only engaged in as a very last resort. But within our culture today, which is a culture of rationalization of our behavior and justification, we tend to forget that when we enter into these polemical starts of arguments all the time, it has a cost of damage to the soul. And you have to say, well, woe to us if we desire to enter out of these, you know, if, if we're unaware of that, and if we even seek to participate in these things because we kind of like it. We kind of like conflict. We kind of like controversy. We kind of like getting stirred up. At one point, there was um, a paper that someone shared with me and it was, you know, we've been talking about ecology. It was actually about ecology. And, but it was, it was just very strange. <laughs> and, and difficult and very uh, argumentative. And, and I was actually asked to write, like, a response to it. The, the person thought it would be good if, if they could give me the paper and then I would write, you know, like a theological response. And, and I started writing something. And I was enjoying so much how I was going to make this person look like a fool as I was writing it. And um, because I was noticing all of these flaws in their argumentation, all of these things that were just, you know, um, erroneous. So one of, the, one of the main things that was a point of contention had to do with... Um, uh, it, it was kind of bringing a lot of stuff about like conservative, like contemporary conservative and liberal positions, and um, and sort of arguing that we needed to move beyond, you know, and kind of progress. But then they were doing that by actually saying a lot of things that are very traditional, <laughs> you know, but unaware of that, They're unaware that like they could just quote Saint Maximus and call it a day, but they thought they were like reinventing. You know what I mean? And like moving in some kind of like new direction or something like that. And that was a big part of it, that we need to embrace the spirit of the new. And it's like, well, I got news for you. Like the, the conservatives that you're attacking are actually more modern than you are. Like way more modern, you know, in, in their way of thinking about things. And if you want to move in this direction, you actually need to go back, you know, <laughs> in history into like the, the earlier church to, to, you know, like I said, St. Maximus, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Dionysius. Um, and so I'm thinking all these things, and when I was writing it, you know, I was really relishing how I was going to like destroy, you know. Um, and then it was one of those moments where I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And why do I love this so much? You know, and so I just never... I never, I never sent them anything. <laughs> you know, they said, like, are you going to write the thing? I was like, no, I, I think I'm just not going like, to. I'm not, not going to write anything. Um, which leads to another thing. Elder Emilianos, in his um, talks about monasticism, kind of as a model for family life and married life and church life, relationships that we have, you know, he uses the example of two monks that have come to a disagreement 
about something. And, and he said, frequently what they do is that they, they agree that they're both going to go study and back up their point, you know, so maybe they go to the scriptures, the church fathers or whatever, and find like a lot of justification for their point of view. And then they'll get to back together and have an argument and hash it out. And one of them will be proof right and the other one's wrong. <laughs> and it's interesting, he says, when monks do this to one another, he actually describes it as being totally inhuman. Why is it totally inhuman? Because again, it's, it's just a total trap of being like rationalized, caught in rationalism in your head. It's like, here's your brother standing right in front of you whom Christ died for. This is the one that you're supposed to love. This is, this is actually Christ, like right in front of you. And instead of just letting it go and being at peace with your brother, you're going to go and build up your argument and then come back to destroy him. You know? And he says, he says, in the monastery, he says, you can't be like this to one another. If you want to um, um, be sincere monastics and followers of Christ. So, I think it would be a blessing to us within the church, within society, if we only utilized polemics, that type of argumentation where we're trying to attack and destroy, as a very last resort, being aware of the damage that it causes to others and ourselves. And also, we could begin to think about, and again, think about how Dr. Tim was inspired in this whole reflection about war and its healing by seeing the trauma that people had experienced and seeing that they weren't being healed. And so he started to think about why is that the case? And so shouldn't we, you know, approach the culture wars in the same way? That like clearly there's a lot of trauma and clearly no one is being healed. The wounds are just growing deeper. And so shouldn't our response to that be as Orthodox Christians, how do we remedy this? How do we relate with others so that it can be remedied? So, so that's all I have for tonight. Does anybody have any questions? I have three things. Three things. Three, did you write them down or are you going to remember them? <laughs> One of the things that he talks about is that um, for men in battle who have killed and they confess it, the, the priest gives them um, penance that mm -hmm. they cannot um, take communion for a year as a healing thing, not as a yeah. healing to his yeah. And then um, the, the woman that you mentioned that talks about Genesis, is that just Genesis by Alice Lindsley? It may be. I think it is. She's really good. Yeah. I think you're right. Because he just mentions in a footnote that he actually had a phone conversation with her, I think, about something that she had written. And so there's a little footnote in the, in the book. Yeah, her site is pretty amazing. And Gen well, Genesis is, is the largest book in the Bible. It has tons of material. But 
Um, do you know her story? She was a, an Episcopal, Episcopal priest. Uh -huh. And she, the more she read about the history of the church and orthodoxy, she, she realized, I have no business being a priest. Oh, wow. And then she eventually became, wow, that's interesting. Yes, yeah, she did. And so she's orthodox, and she teaches and, and, and blogs and all that. But um, anyway, and the last one was, as far as polemics go, I mean, it doesn't have to be um, harsh, but we do have to defend the faith when it needs defense. Well, and that's the thing, is, is um, I think it's a question when we're talking with people about how are we defending it, you know? And um, what does that look like? And so clearly, uh, I think that, you know, the, the example that Metropolitan Anthony gave from, from St. Silouan is, is something that could apply in a lot of different situations, but maybe not in every situation. You know, because obviously, like the monks in China, the Buddhist monks, like they weren't looking for trouble. <laughs> you know, with, the, with the, the 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 Orthodox priest there, they weren't trying to like create problems for him or anything. He was kind of going and like stirring that up on his own. And and so it is. It's a different conversation because you can be there and listen, and be attentive, and no no one was attacking him. You know, um, so I think we do experience more often um, within our lives, within our culture, the sense that if we begin a conversation with someone that it turns pretty quickly to like where we're being attacked. And in those situations, it makes me think actually of when I worked at the psychiatric hospital. Um, they used to teach people which was a terrible idea, that if someone is, is violently agitated and they're screaming, what you need to do is scream just as loud as they are right back in their face and then lower your, you know, and then slowly bring your voice down. The, the thinking was is that I have to get their attention and then I'll lower my voice and lower my voice so that they'll calm down with me. But what ends up happening, of course, is you do that and somebody just attacks you. Like there's no, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work at all. And they learned over time that the most important thing to do, even if someone is, is really violently agitated, is you remain calm. You do not attack. You know, you ask questions. You try to understand, you know. And, um, and that usually, almost every single time, it brings people calm down. You know, and I even remember even years and years ago when I was a little kid, um, this was part of like evangelical churches. We'd go to, you know, like the, um, we were at like a pro-life rally or something like that. And, and I remember even being out, because I'm just, I'm not a very agitated person, like I never have been. <laughs> I don't like to fight. And um, for other people that like to fight, like this has got to be a lot more difficult, you know. But, you know, and so, uh, and I remember somebody coming up and they were just yelling at us, you know, like about, about how backward we were, how wrong we were, how stupid, all this, you know. And of course, like I said, because naturally, like I'm a pretty, I don't react to stuff like that. Um, uh, and they saw that and they started to calm down, 
you know, and eventually we start actually having a real conversation, you know. Um, so I think that, and then there's the reality, like you mentioned, defending the faith. Um, I feel like, and this, I guess this, maybe this is more of a personal thing, but I, I would want us, rather than having the sense of like we're defending the faith, I would want, I would want myself to be more of, have an attitude of, I'm just going to share the faith, you know. And people could say all sorts of things about it. It's like, you know, to be maybe attack me and do all this other stuff. But I'm just going to, I'm going to tell them, you know. As an Orthodox believer, this is, this is what I believe, you know. And, um, and then, you know, they, right, they might potentially say all sorts of things um, that are pretty hurtful, you know. But, but it's a good point. And I think that, um, like I was saying, and even what Dr. Tim is saying, is that, like, sometimes we do have to participate in a very vigorous way, you know, that is more polemical. Uh, but we should just be aware that that's not the preferred way. It's like the, the way of last resort. <laughs> and, and also that there's going to be a cost with that, you know, that that's inescapable. You know, damage to ourselves and damage to other people as well. Um, anything else? What do you got? You just want something to eat. <laughs> I, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's the reality of like. Um, and I think that, again, that's part of the reality that, like, a father will be against his son and children against their parents and all this. The, like, it's a passive sword, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of what, but it, it happens. Like, it's just, it's a reality. People take up their cross and follow Christ, and there's, there's um, division that occurs, problems ensue within families, and um, it can be really challenging sometimes. Um, uh, people don't want to talk to each other anymore, you know, and then, and even when people, sometimes people become orthodox and they might come from a really um, serious, like, like I had a friend years ago who came from a really serious Baptist background. He became orthodox and right away, you're shunned. Nobody would talk to him anymore, you know, so he lost friends, he lost family members, over becoming an Orthodox Christian, and not because he was being nasty about it, <laughs> being or polemical about it, or cruel to anybody. He just said, "This is where I'm going," and they were like, "We're not talking to you anymore. You're not a Christian," you know. So, so stuff, yeah. So that stuff like that definitely happens, um, and that's actually a lot of the. So that's kind of, it's almost a word that's that's something like a, a prophecy, right? And so prophecies, on the one hand, like describe something that's going to happen, but they also kind of just describe like how it is. Like this, this that, is that this, verse? yeah, this is the happening. <laughs> you know. I've also seen people uh, use that verse pretty stupidly. Oh yeah, yeah, to like justify like, it's like yeah, when you yeah, hear that verse from yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah. 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 
Oh, is there anything else? Any comments? No? Liz, Kendra? Right. And oftentimes the goal is more to reduce symptoms. Right. Increase positive things that they want to. Often there's an idea that you're, you can never take a magic pill and go back. Right. Where you were before. Yeah. So there's a new you. Absolutely. So, so how, from an Orthodox perspective, of what is healing? What is wholeness? So healing comes about within the church. And this is a large part of what Dr. Tim is getting at. It, with, it comes about by an encounter with God and a developing communion with God. And, um, and in that, like instead of so, for instance, there's a, there's a quote from um, St. Porphyrius where he says, don't fight against evil, let evil be. Just turn yourself towards Christ. And, and so within that, there is this recognition that people can turn towards Christ and seek communion with him, specifically at his cross, and find that all of that brokenness that they've experienced and all this other stuff, even though it doesn't just disappear, it becomes sort of suffused with a new life and light as they draw near to Christ. And so it's sort of like if you think about you know, people's story or whatever, that their story becomes one of redemption rather than one of total loss and destruction. Um, and so that's why, too, the emphasis in what Dr. Tim is talking about is on beauty, because beauty is something that, and this is, he has a quote from St. Dionysius at the beginning of the book that talks about how um, the divine beauty calls everything from nothing into being. And if you could think of like what people experience when they're in a really traumatic environment, they're almost being reduced to nothing, you know? Like their sense of self is lost, everything is fragmented, everything is falling apart. And so it's beauty that calls them back, you know, from nothingness into being. And, and ultimately that beauty is divine theophany itself and divine revelation, like God's disclosure. It's God's disclosure of his love and of his goodness, of his kindness, and, but the thing is, in order for people to begin to participate in that, frequently the first step is that they have to encounter somebody. And this is something, there's, there's an Orthodox theologian that teaches pastoral theology. He wrote a book called Becoming a Healing Presence. And his understanding is that as we're healed in Christ, we become people that are healers for others. And so as we're healed, like they, they actually encounter that beauty and that healing in that person. But it's a very personal thing. And, um, and then, of course, there's a lot of other things that are related to the ascetical tradition that have to do with how we deal with our thoughts, 
how we deal with negative thoughts and intrusive thoughts and all these other things that can be really beneficial. And they actually really line up. And this is something Dr. Tim gets into too, is that they really line up a lot with cognitive behavioral therapy and the different method techniques that are kind of used in order to get people from, to, to allow them not to be so captivated by their racing thoughts and all this other stuff so that they can kind of begin to let that go. Um, so there's, there's definitely a lot there <laughs> you could keep talking about. Um, there's a lot in the book, and he starts to get into it in more detail as, as the chapter unfolds. Um, and especially dealing with shame, you know, and which I think a very important aspect of the book is that he's, he distinguishes, he makes an important distinction, which many do, between toxic shame, which is really deadly, and shame that's actually healthy, you know, that we just have as human beings that care about other people and that care about our society or whatever, you know. <laughs> and um, the difference between those two things and, um, and also the notion of even, um, and this is something that shows up in Elder Zacharias, of actually like bearing our shame um, openly before others, which essentially you could think of as just being radically honest um, or genuine in, in the appropriate places and times, which is usually confession, you know. Um, so I, I don't know if, yeah, you can, do you have more? Well, I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking of what you were saying about culture wars. I'm just wondering if in a secular culture, then can there be healing in boldness? Yes. But I think just like in, in, in anything, it would require... Um, a movement towards re repentance and change. But the way that that looks is, I think, not always going to be, um, I guess, the way that we would think. So, for example, I think that, and there's, there's a book, Archimandrite Militios Weber wrote a book about the 12 steps in light of Orthodox tradition. And one of the things that he talks about is how the 12 steps really have a lot of roots, you know, in Christian ascetical practices. And, but the whole system, right, is agnostic, you know. They're like, oh, I just I believe my higher power. Which essentially just means that they believe that God exists and that he loves them and he wants them to get better. You know? <laughs> and uh, they don't go any further than that. You know? And I've even heard, I've been at some of those meetings with people and I've heard people talk about situations where they experienced that reality of God's love for them and it was undeniable. But they still consider themselves agnostic. Why? One of the things that Father Melitios points out is that, I think it was him, it may have been a different priest that was talking about this stuff. Part of the reason that that agnosticism can be a very good first step 
is because frequently people have such a warped understanding of who God is that they can't start, they can't just go back to like what they learned when they were in Sunday school because it's all been poisoned. Not only by people that poison it for them, you know what I mean, but just but by their experience, like all of the things that they've experienced. And so when they think of God, so if we use the name God, if we say the Holy Trinity, if we say Jesus Christ, they think essentially of Zeus. You know, they, they think of like this, you know, a bearded guy up in the sky that's ready to hurl thunderbolts at them as soon as they make a mistake. And they're just kind of almost like rooting for their failure, you know. And, um, or maybe they have an image which is very popular amongst many people that, that, that you know, and I always wonder if I'm being unfair when I say this, but then I did, I grew up as an evangelical, so I, I don't know if I'm being unfair or not. But I think for many, the understanding of salvation, right, is that God was so mad at us that he had to kill his only son so that he could tolerate us, you know. And so imagine if that's, so you're trauma, so, so you have that understanding of who God is, and then you've suffered immense trauma in your life. And then somebody tells you, well, the answer is just go back to church. It's like, but God hates me. You know? Or maybe they're a Calvinist, and it's like, clearly I'm not one of the chosen ones. Because look what's happened to me. You know? And so you could imagine that the first step towards healing in those situations in a secular society is, is, could be... Um, like, you know, a little, a little bit agnostic in the way that they, they begin to come to some sort of spiritual life and begin to move along the path of repentance. And, um, but then, of course, ideally, and this is what we pray for, is that that, that understanding that's agnostic of who God is would come to be an understanding that now I know his name. You know, that not only does God exist and care for me, but God is actually personal and desires, you know, a personal relationship with me and is calling me to even, you know, a communion with the divine life and I'm not on my own, you know. And so we'd want to see that progress, but I think that in many ways things like this are happening all the time and because it's not the way that we want it to happen, we're kind of blind to it, you know. Um, so, uh, do you have anything else? <laughs> I have another question not related as much to that, but I don't want to take the whole time. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can talk later. Okay. You can send me an email. Okay. <laughs> uh, Okay. Well, thank you everybody for coming, for sticking around. It's a, it's a little bit after 7.30, so it's a good time to, to stop. And um, we'll see you sometime soon. I hope you all have a good Thank you for joining us at St. George Orthodox Church Homilies and Reflections. Please be sure to like and subscribe and share this podcast with your friends.